Serpentarium. That's the name of the song that we're opening up this week's episode of the podcast with. It is from the band The Scatinas. They are a surf band based out of Germany. It's from their album Tunes for Twingoloids. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to scotinas.bandcamp.com. When you're done listening to episode 624 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear, I'm talking about Monster Kid Radio. And I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Scotinas gave us permission to play their music here on the show. Please check them out when you're done listening to what we've got cooked up this week. And what we've got cooked up this week has been in the, the cooker for a while. Yeah, that makes sense, kind of, because we recorded this episode before the wedding, and the wedding was about two and a half months ago at this point. Thank you cards are still in the works. Sit tight. But, yeah, we got married in April. We recorded this conversation in March, we being me and Mark Holmes. I think it was March. It might have been April. I I don't remember. It's been so long. It's been a whirlwind since then. Anyway, we're going to go to the Earth's Core with Mark Holmes, at the Earth's Core in particular. He wanted to talk about this movie, and it was something that... uh, I'd been wanting to talk about for a while because I really like Amicus films. And this movie, it's a little outside the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. It's a 70s film, but you know what? My show, my rules. I wanted to talk about it and I wanted to have Mark on the show to do it. So that's what we did. Now, of course, it would not be an episode of Monster Kid Radio without some amazing segments contributed by some amazing segment producers. And that's actually how we credit them on the Internet Movie Database. Segment producer Kenny with his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland and segment producer Mark Madsky with his Beta Capsule review. I want to take a quick second to talk about something going on with Mark Madsky. Mark is involved with the Small Town Monsters crew. They make documentaries, they do a lot of things with cryptids, and they do a convention or a festival. And tickets are now on sale for Small Town Monsters Monster Fest too. You can find it over at stmmonsterfest.com. It's going to be in downtown Canton on June 29th, 2024. You can buy tickets in VIP packages now. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to Small Town Monsters Presents Monster Fest 2. If you end up going, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio and tell them that uh, Mark said hi too. I think I can speak for Mark in this case. Mark's actually going to be on an upcoming episode of Monster Kid Radio and I'm sure we'll talk about that as well as a number of other things that he's got going on. Also, before we get to the bulk of the episode, I had some voicemails that came in, and I haven't even listened to them yet, so let's listen to them together right now. Hey, Derek, Steve Sullivan here, calling about Carnival of Souls, a movie that I love probably about as much as you love it. It's just a very, very cool, low-budget film. I had some thoughts, uh, so spoilers, spoilers, spoilers for those listening, and I I basically agree with Beth that... um, the Candace character is, is she's dead. She's always dead, but her she has projected herself. Her will is so strong that she has refused to die and projected herself physically into the world. Except when she loses concentration, she kind of phases out. It's like she's still there, but the world isn't there. The world doesn't see her. And I, that's one of the things that's really, really cool now. I haven't analyzed it deeply enough to know if it is exactly when she gets upset, but that makes a lot of sense. That when she becomes upset, uh, she would lose her grip on what's going on. I think that's also the key to the other the other characters, who I think are ghosts or spirits. They're not, they're not zombies, they're not corporeal. 
no one else ever sees them. Even when she's seeing them in the real world setting, there's something that's haunting her and is not actually physically there, except in the sense they can interact with her because she's actually a ghost as well. That's, that's kind of my take on that. And as to whether she is, uh, has a part is on the spectrum somewhere, I really think that what you're seeing is that, which could be interpreted as being on the autism spectrum somewhere, I think is actually a sign of her being disconnected from the real world because she's a ghost. So she, she doesn't really have the soul to put in the music, even though she has the mechanics. And we don't know what she was like before the car crash, but we do know she was lively enough to get into a car with a bunch of other kids and try to race across the bridge, which seems different than the kind of morose and lifeless person that she is, even though she tries to be more, but she keeps getting drawn back because, as we know from the end of the film, she's really dead. That's my take on it anyway. It was really good listening to you guys talk about it. I'm glad that uh, you had a great time and Beth had a great time. And I'm going to recommend seeing either the first Harryhausen film by himself, Beast, from 20,000 20, Fathoms, or uh, Jason and the Argonauts, or Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Those were all great intros to Harryhausen, I think. So, and if she's, you know, more sci-fi, I guess you could go for this or for the uh, flying saucers, but uh, there are no bad Harry Hudson picks, really. <laughs> so, and the 29th. Well, that voicemail cut off. Unfortunately, the Google voicemail line that we use, that we use for free, does have a three-minute limit, so if you go longer than three minutes, it just cuts you off. You're always welcome to call back and continue your conversation, and what we'll do then is uh, just stitch it together in post, which... We're going to do with another voicemail uh, later on, and I'll get to that here in a second. But, you know, the more I think about Carnival of Souls and watching it with Beth and hearing her point of view and then and all of that, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's less about her journey from, you know, the, the afterlife or whatever, or it's all, it, it's not in her head. It, it, she is dead, and I'm going to have to rewatch it again, darn. Uh, to see, you know, is there like an emotional thing going on when she does start to slip and people stop seeing her? That said, you'd think the people that were interacting with her right before she becomes basically invisible to them would react to her being gone all of a sudden. Although now I said that and I guess she goes into the dressing room and then comes back out and the salesperson wasn't like, shocked at seeing somebody disappear right in front of her. I don't know. But, yeah, I dig it. I dig it. Uh, you are not the only person to have some suggestions about Harryhausen. Uh, I had some other comments come in as well, like this one. Hey, Derek, I'm on... This is going to be a pod walk. Remembering of Vince Ricolo, his first B-movie cast. It's on while he was walking. But you inspired me. I just finished listening to today's podcast. You inspired me with your request for next movie for Beth and I think I have the perfect one The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad here's why one it moves like lightning it's only 80 minutes long and it has a pace uh, that modern film lovers are accustomed to two the special effects 
uh, basically the, the inspiration of all modern special effects. And of course, you know, they're superb. Number three, uh, her love for haunted houses, the scenes in Socorro's castle, and especially the jump scare of the skeleton coming down and the skeleton fight, I think will, uh, I think she'll find thrilling. And if you get that timing just right, you can get her a jump scare that haunted house people love so much. Um, you know, number four uh, is the music is incomparable and it just blasts you out of your seat with Bernard Herman greatness. And um, I can't imagine anyone not loving that. And um, I'm trying to think of a classic five reason. There's tons of them, of course, but, you know, a handsome cast. You know, Gordon Matthews um, and uh, Catherine Grant, Warren Thatcher. They're all excellent in the movie. And so I think that should be the movie she watches next. Seven Voyage of Sinbad. Can he be at the Monster Bass signing off? So that message actually was sent in to the show over a year ago by Kenny when he was at last year's Monster Bash. I think it was last year's Monster Bash. It wasn't this year's Monster Bash. That one just happened, and I hope everybody had a grand time. And uh, yeah, I do have some audio that came in from that, and I'm working to get some more. But yeah, that message came from Kenny, and uh, I just said, don't think I ever got around to playing it on the show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Steve's and Kenny's message and kind of look at the Harryhausen collection for myself. And then I'll present a couple of different titles to Beth, and then we'll go from there. Probably not anytime soon because we've got a couple of big things that we're working on right now. Some life changes that might be happening with me uh, that we're kind of excited about, depending on how uh, much financial aid is out there in the world. And that's all I really want to say about that. But yeah, we're, we're, we've got some things coming up, but I, I do want to watch some movies with her. Uh, I love sharing my Monster Kid movies with her. She shared some of her movies with me as well. In fact, I'm going to get back to that at the end of this episode. I do have some of the voicemails that have come in. I'm going to sit on those for now. We're going to play those next week. So sit tight. Uh, it turns out that I actually have some voicemails from Captain Billy that I haven't gone through, probably because I got locked out of my Google Voice. For a little while unfortunately so i, I kind of lost access to that so what i'm going to do is i'm going to gather the rest of these voicemails together and you're going to hear them on next week's show if you want to be part of that please feel free to give me a call at 360-524-2484 leave a voicemail and we'll include it in the mix again remember that three minute limit or you can just send me an audio file like kenny did uh, through the various messaging services that i use but the best one is just email monsterkidradio at gmail.com the Scotinas have been playing now for over 10 minutes, so let's give them a break and get to the rest of the episode right now.
is the Vault of Horror. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. The Vault of Horror. It has all the things that make life worth leaving. House of Horrors. Horrors the screen has never before dared to depict. The terrifying horror of man killing vine with a human brain that creeps and kills. The terrifying horror of the dead, entombed for 200 years, that creeps its way back to terrorize the living. The terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror, who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Return of Ultraman, Episode 18, Here Comes Ultra 7. Original air date, July 30th, 1971. No sooner had Captain Kato concluded a call to his college chum on board the Monster Attack Team space station than it came under attack by Space Monster Bemstar, which absorbed the station's energy before killing the entire crew. Bemstar turns its sights on Earth and is confronted by M.A.T. and Arrows 1 and 2, but the jet fighters are ineffective and worse, Minami and Wayno are hospitalized following their crash landing. And Captain Kato faces the unenviable task of informing his friend Kaji's wife that she is now a widow. M.A.T. analysis determines that Bemstar feeds on gases, and true to form, the space kaiju locates an oil refinery and begins to feast. Captain Kato, taking the matter personally, commandeers the Arrow 2, determined to exact revenge. Go likewise aims to defeat Bemstar, seemingly transforming at will into Ultraman, but the monster repels his efforts. Ultraman flies toward the sun in a desperate bid to recharge, but a voice warns him not to endanger himself by getting too close. The source of the voice is none other than Ultra 7, who has come to the aid of his Ultra Brother. But will it be in time to save Captain Kato, whose jet has been shot down by their monster opponent? Here Comes Ultra 7 has tremendous significance, if for no other reason than it establishes Ultraman and Ultra 7 existing in the same continuity, a fact that would have enormous implications for the history of the franchise. In the flow of the episode, it's an awesome moment in its own right. Even though the title is itself a spoiler, the arrival of Ultra 7, heralded by his theme music, is charged with excitement as he saves Ultraman from hurtling into the sun. Episode 18 has a unique feel. It's not really a reboot, but the heavy use of special effects, the prominent placement of musical cues for both Ultra 7 and Returned Ultraman, 
and the introduction of a space monster, which was evidently the result of a poll asking what kids were interested in seeing, seemed to indicate a restatement of sorts for the series. Whatever it was, it was working, with ratings hovering around 20% that would climb throughout the show's first run. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Mansky reporting. Must have been a little after three o'clock in the afternoon that it began, the afternoon of June 3rd, 1916. Fire one, fire two. This could have been the end. The end of just another tragic episode in war at sea. But for the few survivors of a torpedoed merchant ship and the crew of a German U-boat lost in the frozen South Atlantic, it was the beginning of an incredible adventure. For this was the day the 20th century met the primeval world face to face. American International presents The Land of Time Forgotten, an astounding motion picture based on the book by Edgar Rice Burroughs, creator of Tarzan and the most thrilling science fiction stories ever written. Travel through an underwater passage and discover an awesome prehistoric world. Fight for your life against the terrifying creatures of a lost continent. Come face to face with primitive man and learn the secret of evolution, the land that time forgot. Mr. Tyler! Starring Doug McClure. There's a secret to this island, something that we haven't been able to fathom yet. And whether we stay or get away may depend on it. It's action, danger, and adventure on an epic scale. How much longer do we give them? We're not leaving without them! Forget Skipper! You will never forget Edgar Rice Burroughs land that time forgot. Where Westworld stopped, Future World begins. Future World, offering fantasy, sensuality, and adventure. Complete satisfaction guaranteed. Entrance fee, $1,200 a day. Exit fee, your life. Peter Fonda, Blythe Danner, Arthur Hill, and Yule Brynner as the gunslinger in Future World. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are talking about At the Earth's Core. This film was previewed in FM 129 from October of 1976. The article talked about the literary origins of the story and gave a detailed spoiler-filled synopsis. It covered seven pages and included nine photos. It also mentioned the producers and cast. Let's hear that information. Teamed again, Milton Sabotsky and Max J. Rosenberg, who recently were thrilling us with The Land That Time Forgot and previously have scared us all the way from Dr. Terror's House of Horrors to The Skull to Asylum 
with a little help from Robert Block. Milton Max have done it again and came up with an evening's entertainment for Imagine Movie buffs. First, fresh from that land that slipped time's memory, they recruited Doug McClure to portray David Ennis. Then they figured, figure is the word for it, that Caroline Monroe had figured so prominently in four previous fantasy films, Dracula AD 1972, Captain Kronos, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and I Don't Want to Be Born, Max and Milt decided it would be a good idea to cast Caroline as the beautiful Dia, heroine of the horror land deep beneath the Earth's surface. To put the frosting on the cake, to play Dr. Abner Perry, the scientist who invents the machine that goes out of control and dives like a troll to the center of old Terra Inferma, Eminem wisely chose that veteran of Dracula and Frankenstein, Mummy, and many more monster epics. Peter, ta-da! Cushing! Two issues later, in FM 131 from January of 1977, the article Around the World with AIP took us on a tour of three classic 70s monster flicks, Future World, Food of the Gods, and today's movie at the Earth's core. This was all hosted by an imaginary android named Clark. Let's hear what happened when they arrived at the Earth's core. Yes, sir, Clark begins. You will board the Iron Mole. A friend of mine, built by Dr. Abner Perry, the Iron Mole burrows deep into the Earth's crust for a visit to the dawn of time, to the world of Pelucador. Since the inside the Earth is hollow, it is necessary that the film star Peter Cushing be with you on each trip. After all, when you plunge through the Earth's shell, you will need a Cushing to land on. Great groans and moans escape from the crowd as the program puns are taken in a holiday spirit. At this portion of the tour, ladies and gentlemen, we have a guest speaker who will tell you more about the fabulous life in Pelucadar, a being who certainly needs no introduction. Just then a woman's scream cuts through Clark's speech. All eyes turn toward the outbreak and what they see makes them pop like Marty Feldman's for a middle-aged woman is slapping frantically at her head as cruel reptilian hands clutch her hat. The great beak screeches like Ska, the vulture, and the huge membranous wings flap in fury as the flying Saurian tries to eat the woman's hat, and she tries vainly to stop the Ma'ar from pulling off her head at the same time. Get out of Ma'ar, she shrieks as the reptile tugs at her tresses, making her look like a poor man's Medusa. Ah, I see you've met your tour guide for the trip at the Earth's core, Clark says. I will return when this portion of your trip has ended. He moves aside and stands stock still, only his gears humming audibly. Well, when do we start, someone asks. It would be well for you to remember that Mahars are the ruler of Pelucadar, human, snaps the winged reptile. A shudder of fear and apprehension sweeps through the group. I have seen many humans at our place of worship, the temple of the Mahars. I have watched from the depths of the pool. My thoughts burned into the minds of a frightened human. It speaks the word with revulsion. All fight us, but all finally succumb. And one by one, each human is drawn into the pool, into my waiting arms. We go down, down into the water until we both are swallowed by the dark depths. And the pool changes from chill black to frothing blood red. Good Lord, says a mother turning to her son. Do they eat us? Her son impatiently shrugs. Well, Ma, hard today, gaunt tomorrow. 
Why would anyone want to visit that terrible place? A shocked feminine voice asks. For the love of adventure, danger, and excitement, replies a male voice from the crowd. Think of it, a land untainted by civilization, unspoiled by man, where death is a constant companion, and man must live by his wits and his brawn. At every twist in the jungle path lurk the monster denizens of Pelucadar, half-human Sagos, the slaves of the Mahars, cave bears and thiptars, flying reptiles. Certainly, the dangers are terrible, but the beauties of Pelucadar are just as vibrant, Dia the beautiful in particular. Suddenly, a scream rips the air. She's gone! It's taken her! Both the Mahar and the woman in the rumpled hat are gone. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Journey back to the dawn of age. To a world lost in the twilight of creation. A world outside of time. Edgar Rice Burroughs, Master of Shock Adventure, now takes you beyond the limits of human experience in The People That Time Forgot. All new, never-before-seen, incredible battles between strange, barbaric civilizations and monstrous prehistoric beasts witness thousands of living nightmares. Could this be the missing link? This is Edgar Rice Burroughs' Ultimate Shock Adventure. The People That Time Forgot, starring Patrick Wayne, Doug McClure, Sarah Douglas, Dana Gillespie. The People That Time Forgot, from American International, rated PG. Now, American International brings to the screen H.G. Wells' most fantastic story, The Food of the Gods. Ecology goes berserk, transforming harmless insects and animals into huge and vicious beasts preying on the flesh of humans. Imagine a rooster six feet tall, panther-sized rats hunting humans in packs. H.G. Wells, The Food of the Gods, for a taste of hell. Rated PG. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of. Like that pesky Van Helsing. Listeners, when I was watching this movie, I kept flashing back in a good way to another series of films, two films from Amicus featuring Peter Cushing in kind of a bumbling scientist role. But this wasn't Doctor Who. (laughs) This was at the Earth's core, suggested by this week's guest. It's Mark Holmes. Welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. Glad to be here. Yeah, you know, we had you on the show... Gosh, it was so long ago, man. When we sh- at a at a monster bash. Oh well, things happen. Well, some things happen. Some devices go off track when digging into the center of the earth and end up uh, 
inciting a slave rebellion and hanging out with Carolyn Monroe. So I can't ask for a better day. What are you going to do tomorrow? <laughs> you had suggested a handful of titles when uh, we were talking about getting you on the show to do this. And this was one of them. And, you know, I know about your appreciation and fandom of Carolyn Monroe. So I wanted to tackle this. Plus it's Peter Cushing. Doug McClure ranks up there on Mount Rushmore adjacent of, uh, Action starts. So I want to ask then, because even before we started recording, you were talking about how you've seen this movie so many times. What What is it about this movie that grabs you? Like, what, What's your history with it? Okay, let's go back in time. Okay. 1970s. Okay. I was a uh, teen. I was obsessed with uh, Monster Kid type material. We watched uh, back then... We didn't have cable so much, so we watched UHF channels. And on Saturday mornings, they would play the creature features. And I was glued to my TV. I, I loved all that stuff. Now, we have to go back a little bit more to 1973 when uh, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad came out. Okay. I was maybe 10, possibly 11 when I saw it. And I was, I loved the movie. And I was quite smitten with uh, Miss Caroline Monroe. Yeah, at 10 or 11, she was my girl. So uh, we didn't have videotape back then. Lord knows the internet was generations away. So I would scan the TV Guide magazine every week. And if there was a Caroline movie on, I would track it down and watch it. That's how I saw at the Earth's Core that was on TV. And I, I don't ever remember coming around to the theaters where I lived. So um, I caught that one on TV. Okay. And I was a Doug McClure fan. I used to watch The Virginian. He was Trampus on that show forever. Uh, he did a movie called The King's Pirate, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And then I later found out that was a remake of a uh, Errol Flynn movie. So uh, Doug McClure was a good part of my of my youth too. So And then the trifecta, Peter Cushing... Uh, my sister and I were Hammer fans. They would play the Hammer movies where I lived late at night. So uh, we would stay up late, my sister and I, and we would watch all the Hammer movies. And it seemed like every other week Peter Cushing was on. It, it's like the man worked all the time. It's like he never had a weekend off. I had never seen this one. This is one that uh, I've even had on Blu-ray at one point. You know, it's just one that I never got around to watching. These these Amicus oh. movies... Uh, Doug McClure signed a deal to do four movies with Amicus. And uh, this was one of them. And they catch a lot of grief because they came out right before Star Wars changed the game. So by the mm -hmm. time they made it to uh, cable and broadcast TV, they seemed outdated. You, you understand where I'm coming from? I do. And I wonder if that's why it never really pinged my radar. Yeah, it's, it's very possible. I find they had a lot of heart. I will watch a movie where somebody has put their heart into it more than something that's technically perfect and has no soul. That makes sense. That makes sense. And this one definitely has that. I am a fan of British genre cinema. You know, I did the, the Hammer Films podcast for so long with Scott and Casey, you know, back in the day. And while that was all Hammer Films, you know, we didn't do Amicus over there. I've talked about some Amicus films here on the podcast in the past as well. I usually associate the anthology film or the yeah. portmanteau film yeah. with Amicus, uh -huh. but they did a number of standalone pictures as well. And I was kind of joking a little bit 
uh, about Peter Cushing and Doctor Who, they produced two Doctor Who films yes. with yes. Cushing in, in the role. And many, many, many Americans. That was their first introduction to Doctor Who was the Peter. I know it was for me. I saw those Peter Cushing movies years before I ever saw uh, Tom Baker, Doctor Who on PBS. I still, you know, I've talked about it on the show. I have so little Doctor Who experience. My Doctor Who experience is a few clips on YouTube people have shown me, like mm -hmm. Beth, or the two Peter Cushing films, or the 90s TV movie on Fox. <laughs> right. That's, that, that's my Doctor Who background. It's a deep dive if you ever choose to go down that well, Derek. It's a, it's... I know, I know. And I, I want to, uh, you know, the monsters alone... The Cybermen are cool, man. I mean, they look awesome. There are various best of collections, and you know, you pick the best of from each era, and you can get a very good taste of what Doctor Who is. I think Beth is uh, at some point is going to be able to kind of uh, guide me in getting doctored Doctor Who. I don't know something, <laughs> but this one definitely oh, felt like the uh, Amicus Doctor Who movie to me in terms of like the color. Uh, especially the second Doctor Who film they did, right. the color and just the production design, mm -hmm. the, the aesthetic to it, which I really like. I like the Doctor Who films, especially the second one. That's so fun. I was right at home watching this, man. I'll put that the flying saucer landing up against anything. That was very impressive for what they mm -hmm. were working with in that in the day that they made that move. That flying saucer landing. And that movie was very impressive. It was very cool. Yeah. And this one is cool, too. I totally understand what you're saying about how Star Wars kind of changed the game. And it changed the game for everything. Everything. This movie did okay, box office-wise. I think I was reading that it was like the 18th highest grossing film in the UK the year it was released. But it also was, if not the last, one of the last Amicus projects. Right, right. Uh, the 70s so. hit British cinema and the American uh, production pretty hard. The, the recession back then. Uh, Amicus went down. Hammer went down. Trigon, they were gone. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, they never really recovered. The BBC got hit hard. Uh, there, there was a big break of Doctor Who production during the seventies. There was a financial, and uh, there was a big strike on the at the BBC. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they were. Huh. Go, going back to Doctor Who, we're drifting here a little bit. But they were right in the middle of filming a, a Doctor Who serial where there was a strike and they shut production down. And by the time the strike was settled, they said, we, we just can't go back. You know, that was a lost, uh, a lost episode. They, ne huh. they never quite, they finished it with animation and they got some of the voice actors back. But uh, I watched it. It's, it just wasn't my cup of tea, you know. Interesting. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, it's crazy times. To get back on, on yeah, let's get back to this one. <laughs> let's uh, talk about the man Edgar Rice Burroughs real quick. Okay, so my experience with Burroughs, Tarzan. That's, that's everybody's Tarzan, and that his estate is very uh, happy to sue anybody who even sniffs in their direction. They're very protective of the IP. They're very protective, even though some of it's in the public domain now. Yes. I understand the difference between copyright and trademark, but still. Uh, but I, I know very little about Burroughs himself, and I've not really read a lot of his okay, stuff. He's a, he was he led quite the life, and I'm 
very surprised there hasn't been a, a docu-series or biography or live-action biography of us because the man had an exciting life just not writing. Uh, born in the 1800s, 1875 he was born. And uh, he wanted to go to West Point, but he failed his uh, entrance exam. So he immediately joined the Army and became a cavalryman out in the last days of the Old West. And uh, he really got to know the Native Americans that they interacted with, and he really respected them. And that transferred into some of his writings. You can see it. At a time when Indians were the bad guys in fiction, he wrote two novels where Indians were the Euro, American Indians, the Native Americans. And uh, the red race on Mars you are clearly patterned after Native Americans. When they're first described, uh, they're described with... Uh, plumage in their hair which oh. i want to say they were wearing feathers but things like that they 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 carried spears you know okay it, it was he really respected the natives had a little bit of a heart trouble so he had to leave his military career so he did something a little less dangerous and became a cowboy <laughs> and then he became a gold miner had a bunch of jobs he uh he said he bottomed out as a uh, pencil wholesaler. And he had a lot of downtime in between pencil sales, so he started reading Pulp Fiction. And uh, his quote is, I can write as poorly as these other men can write. So he took a stab at writing. And <laughs> his first work was called uh, Under the Moons of Mars, which was okay. later the title was changed to A Princess of Mars. And he knocked it out of the ballpark with his very first book. It was a, a three-part serial first, and then they made it into a book. And that's the first John Carter book in his uh, Barsoom series. Mars is known as Barsoom to the Martian. Okay. And that was in 1912. So uh, that book is being read today, 110 years later. That's impressive. Impressive. He's really made the mark. His second book was a little-known story called Tarzan of the Apes. And that one, I don't, I can't count how many times Tarzan has been on film, TV, comics. He spanned the whole gamut. He really, he really hit a home run with Tarzan. That really resonates to this day. Yeah. I mean, Tarzan is constantly getting adapted into various television and, mm -hmm. and film. Everybody's done it. I remember Saturday morning cartoons. Right. With the Tarzan yell, the profile oh, shot geez. of him putting his hands to his mouth and doing the yell. I, I had a board game based on that cartoon as a kid. There's a lot of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs aficionados out there saying that that filmation cartoon was about as close to Tarzan as written in the novels. And imagine oh, wow. doing that under the constraints of all the censorship they had with cartoons for children in the 70s. So those those creators did a great job. I haven't gone back to revisit that in forever, so I don't know how well it holds up. And I, I barely remember. All I remember is the profile shot of him cupping his mouth right. and doing the Tarzan yell and the board game that I had. And That's I, all I remember about it. How are you on adapting books in the film? Do you like it when the writers change the source material a little bit to make what they claim? You know, it's it's tough. I mean, I think... I, I try not to get too precious because I know it's a different medium. Right. And and I don't know if I'm going to catch flack for this, but 
I do prefer Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park to uh, Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. So I, you know, I'm, I, going I'm, with. I'm okay with some changes, but okay. So having said that, you can thank Amicus for the land that time forgot and at the Earth's core for being very, very faithful to the source material. Okay. All right. Of course, now we're, we'll, we'll concentrate on uh, At the Earth's Core, which was Burroughs' third novel. So he's, he's had three hits right in a row coming out of the gate. Wow, really? The man was amazing. I need to learn more about this, dude. I got to find a good biography to read about him or something. So um, At the Earth's Core, the, the, the book is vast in scale. I mean, you can do things in prose that in from 1970s low-budget filmmaking you could not ever do however they did as best as they could and i feel they really get up five stars for uh, sticking to the source material okay okay so what do we have here we have uh david innis and abner perry david is your all-american guy you know handsome big strong abner perry is his uh i can't call him a sidekick they were equals. They they were friends. Mm-hmm. Even though Perry is much older than Ennis, they were friends. And it really comes through in the film that they're buddies. You know, they they come from two different worlds. Yet, with this uh, project that they decide to work together on, this digging machine called the Iron Mole, which is right out of a steampunk dream. Very steampunk. It's very steampunk. The technology they had, you almost think they had uh, TV cameras on the nose of this iron mole. Right. In the set, I'm pretty sure that's what they did. They put two TV monitors where the windows were. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. So they, they, they construct this iron mole. They make a bet that they can bore through this mountain and beat a team of horses. They cut into the mountain just like the plan goes. And then after that, the plan doesn't survive. And they go straight down instead of straight across. And they burst into the hollow earth. Again, having not read, I don't think I've read any of uh, Burroughs' original material. My exposure to Burroughs all comes from the adaptations and, and pop culture references or I don't know how pop culture really is if it's something only monster kids know about, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, as far as the Hollow Earth stuff, I assumed we were going to get to some Hollow Earth stuff. Oh. I mean, it's the, in the title at the Earth's core. I wasn't expecting... I don't know what I was expecting, to be completely honest. I, I wasn't expecting what we got. Um, okay, I did a little bit of research on the okay. Earth. Burroughs was okay. extremely well-read. He, he, I assume so. He stayed on top of things. He was a man of science, and mm-hmm. he believed in evolution. He, he really he talks about it in his novels all the time, how things evolve, and there are branches that go off in different directions and things like that. Now, I did a little research, and the hollow earth theory uh, was first postulated by Edmund Haley, of all people, who they named Haley's Comet after. Okay. The late 1600s. Now the uh, the author of the of the book I was checking out said you can even go further back to the ancient Greeks, where they believed Hades was directly below us. You could dig down and make your way into Hades. 
So if you want to go back that far, the ancient Greeks believed in a hollow earth. And there's many, many religions believe that heaven or hell, no matter you know how you believed, was in the center of the earth. Right. So it goes way, way back. Now, this Haley's idea of a hollow earth, was, his uh, theory was disproven less than 100 years later by other scientists. But it seemed to catch into people's brains and the, the idea would come back again and again over time. And as late as the late 1890s and early 1900s, there were people postulating that there was a hollow earth. And I'm pretty sure that's where uh, Burroughs picked up his idea to have a hollow earth. Because the theory was the earth was hollow and there was a sun at the center of the earth. Whereas more realistic science uh, believed that what we believe today, that you dig down and you will hit magma. And the, the temperature yeah. and pressure would be so insane that no nothing could live down there. But for a science fiction story, it's as good as any. I mean, it's as good as... We would see that... Cons- I mean, it even got brought up in uh, the last legendary Godzilla movie. I mean, oh. it's, it's persistent. It's a persistent trope. Mm-hmm. It, it gets used a lot. Mm-hmm. So whether we're looking for King Kong's homeland or Carolyn Monroe running around in a leather you know, right. top... You know, that's how I got to go. That's where I'm going. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned the steampunk dream of the machine that, that was cool. Uh, this, this movie, like I said, it was a first time watch for me. So I I didn't know what to expect going into the whole thing. Uh, I, I had some vague notions. I didn't expect Peter Cushing to be playing kind of, I don't want to say doddering scientist because I mean, he was capable but he was very, um, well, like, his Doctor Who character in the first Doctor Who movie. Uh, <laughs> but there, there was a lot of things happening in here that I kind of like feel I may have just lost my track here that were happening in this that were on the periphery of things that I know a little bit about, like Burroughs, like Steampunk. And it, it really just makes me crave more. And now talking to you about Burroughs, I want to know even more about the dude and maybe even read some of his stuff. But I don't know a lot about steampunk, but I know what steampunk looks like. And this had a very cool steampunk aesthetic. And now I kind of want to explore that more. Right. And, you know, I want to learn more about the Hollow Earth stuff and other Hollow Earth stories, uh, whether they're written by Burroughs or somebody else at this point. Well, Burroughs uh, wrote several really more. Cool. Yeah, this is, I did read that, that this is an adaptation of a book that is part of a series. Right. There's at least five that I can think of off the top of my head. Now, several featuring uh, David and Abner Perry and uh, other periphery characters. Now, another thing we can chalk up to Burroughs is that he created a contained universe where his Pellucidor stories crossed over into Tarzan and into uh, the Barsoom stories and the Venus stories. Really? All interconnected. And the linchpin that connected them all was Burroughs. He actually kind of, he never named himself, but he kind of wrote himself into the stories in the introductions. So it was, it was pretty cool. I mean, for, like I said, this is 110 years ago now. He had the foresight to say, you know, wouldn't it be neat if Tarzan went to the Earth's core? And he actually did it. He made it happen. 
you know, he had one character wanted to fly a rocket ship from the Earth to Mars to meet John Carter, and his rocket went astray and he wound up on Venus instead. You know, so it's all huh. interconnected. So the the Burroughs shared universe right. um, it is huh. really awesome. That's that's pretty cool. The, the man was a visionary. He really saw into the future. Okay, now now I really do want to learn more yeah. about. I'm gonna see if there's any uh, good biographies about him to read because that just sounds amazing. But anyway, our heroes make it through. And yeah, said they were they're friends. They're you know, one does not bend down to the other one and say you're the leader, I'm the follower. Or David would say, Perry, where where on earth are we? And Perry says, I don't think we're on Earth. I think we're under the Earth. Yeah. It, it was it was really cool. I mean, and it didn't phase him. He was in heaven. <laughs> yeah, it's what he wanted. I mean, it, it's like, I'm, he's, yeah. He says, I did a uh, machine to dig through a mountain, and I wind up discovering an entire new world. <laughs> yeah. I do like the relationship between the two. Uh, at the very, very beginning... It, it does feel like maybe David is going to be in that secondary sidekick role um, just at the very beginning, but that, that changes so quick. And the chemistry between the two, former student, former teacher, now friends, now equals, mm -hmm. um, really enjoyed that, their dynamic. I do appreciate that David gets to go on and have some of the more heroic adventure parts of the story dedicated to him. Mm -hmm. But the movie really shines when he's on screen with Cushing, and especially with Monroe. Yes, the three of them together made quite the team. Because uh, yeah. Perry, being the perfect British gentleman, treated her like a lady. Here she is, a savage in a loincloth and leather top, and he treats her like she's the Queen of England. You know, right? He he kissed her hand and he called her your your highness. You know, yeah. And a tribe of forty people, and she's the princess. So you know, <laughs> she's in charge. <laughs> I, I will say that I did have to shake my head and just kind of accept that, yeah, they all spoke English. Yeah, well, <laughs> okay. Now I'm but, I mean, what do you do? You the know? movie follows the novel extremely well. In the novel, when they are captured, well, for, they, they, they wind up in the inner world. They're almost immediately captured by these brutes called the Sagoth. <laughs> and, uh, they're chained up with other humans, which they are surprised to see. And in the movie, they, they immediately start talking with them. In the novel, they're on this death march for quite a while. And Burroughs explains that you got nothing else to do. You'll learn the native language as best you can so you can communicate with the people you're enslaved with. Oh, okay. So they, Burroughs waved his hand at it. The movie just said, we've got an hour and a half. I once read a... Uh, I once read a very comical science fiction story where it said that everybody in the entire galaxy speaks English except on Earth. Earth is the only planet where they have different languages. Wow. I I got a geek out of that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, they had, in order to move the story along, everybody speaks English. Yeah, it's just one of those things you have to kind of accept, kind of shrug and accept. and Right. You know. I said, but it doesn't, it wasn't enough to take me out of the story. It wasn't enough to make me go, hey, wait a minute, you know, who's this kind of a, oh, okay, I get it <laughs> kind of moment. So uh, our hero, David, is just lucky enough to get chained up right next to Caroline Monroe, 
who plays Dia the Beautiful. <laughs> I'm no argument. All right. All right. In case people aren't familiar with me, which is very possible, I am lucky enough to have met and worked with Carolyn Monroe on a Joshua Kennedy production of House of the Gordon. <laughs> we met her, Josh and I formed a relationship over Facebook. And then he went to college in New York, which is fairly close to where I live. And uh, we went to a couple of conventions together in New Jersey and where we met Caroline Monroe and Martine Beswick and uh, Veronica Carlson, all those ladies. They're, they're all, all of them are wonderful ladies. And Josh being the uh, sugar tongue devil that he is, was able to convince all those women to be in a movie that he was shooting down in Texas, and he invited me to come down and help out. So Caroline Monroe is a very special place in my heart. She was my dream girl when I was a teenager, and then as a grown man, I've got to meet her and work with her. So, you know, big big check on that bucket list item right there. So right. So when I wax on about Caroline Monroe, it's 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 pure love right from the heart. So. So here, here he is, our hero, is, is chained up right next to Caroline Monroe. He gets in a little tussle with another, uh, one of their fellow slaves, and he commits a faux pas, a, a cultural faux pas, by not immediately claiming her as his bride after he defeats another man in combat. So he's kind of ostracized, which made me think, Everything that David goes through in this movie, he's human. He's not perfect. He makes mistakes. He gets hurt. He loses fight. You know, and it reminded me, this is the prototype to Indiana Jones. I believe people love Indiana Jones so much because he's not perfect. You know, at the end of a fight, he's bloody. He's got bruises. You know, his clothes are torn. So I'm thinking that your David is a prototype to the kind of hero that people like to watch in movies. That makes sense. I can see him being like a, a proto proto Jones. <laughs> proto by being written seventy years before Indiana Jones was written. Yeah. Well, and we know where Spielberg and Lucas took a lot of their inspiration for Indiana Jones now, and the, the pulp adventures and the serials and right. the I mean, it all kind of disconnected in some way, right? Now, yeah, Burroughs was not there first, but he was a master of the art. He got inspiration. You know, you can say that At the Earth's Core was inspired by Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne, which was written before Burroughs was born, <laughs> in 1864 or so. So they all build on each other, and it's a better world. We're, we're very fortunate to have Indiana Jones in our lives because he was built upon by all the heroes that came before him. So I don't want to just do a complete recap of the movie. No, no. And, you know, we don't. Let's, not Let, let's talk about here. some of the things. I, uh, I speak in depth with Caroline Monroe about the making of this movie. He did. I first talked to her about uh, Golden Boy to Sinbad, which is a Harryhausen movie, of course. And she informed me that Ray Harryhausen had his hand in everything in that movie. I assumed he just did the special effects, and I was completely wrong. She said he helped write it, direct it, choose the locations, and that movie's a masterpiece. And part of it is the uh, stop-motion effect. Sure. So here we are, we go, and just 
And uh, Atheris Core was filmed just a few years later than uh, Golden Voyages Sinbad, of course, but they didn't have Ray Harryhausen or any stop motion work done. They used our old favorite stick a guy in a rubber suit, which I'm perfectly on board with. I don't know if you remember our first conversation back in Monster Bash in 2019. I told you I'd rather see a rubber tentacle than a CGI tentacle any day of the week. I think that's pretty common with a lot of the listeners and, okay. and us. You know, I, I yeah, I agree with you. And it's, sure enough, in that the Earth's Core movie, we do get to see rubber tentacles. We do. <laughs> we do have some rubber tentacles. Um, oh, the monsters are... I want to mm-hmm. say I'm... I wear my heart on my sleeve. By 1976, they were fantastic. We've seen better rubber monsters before. Mm-hmm. But we have to remember we're working on a budget here. We got monsters when they could have easily just waved our hand and said, no, there's no monster down there. We're just going to make this, you know, we're going to adapt the story to where there are no monsters. I'd rather see monsters, and I got monsters. Yeah, Giant we, we certainly did. Full off, some kind of bull, two-legged bull creature with horns. I mean, they never really went to go mention what they were. The main bad guys in the movie are the Mayhards. They're like pterodactyls. Peter Cushing's uh, Perry immediately recognizing them as uh, Ramphoricus. And he's very adamant. He's very happy to say that there are Ramphoricus right there in front of him. And he says, however, our fossilized remains are no, not much bigger than a crow. And Peter Cushing, being the master actor that he is, he holds his hands out in front of him and demonstrates to the audience how big he says it's the crow, but he puts his hands so far apart, showing the audience how big that these creatures should be. And here they are towering over humans. They're like supposedly like ten or twelve feet tall. And I said, "That's I said that's Cushing for you." Yeah. No director told him to do that. He did that on his own. And I don't know if this episode is going to come out before or after, but earlier today I did another recording with somebody else where we talked about. Uh, the Abominable Snowman with Cushing and Forrest Tucker. And during that same conversation, during that conversation, we were talking the same thing about how Cushing and his hands and the props he would interact what? with, he just never stopped right. moving his hands. He always did something with them. The Mayhards, they're, they're giant pterodactyls and they're relatively stationary. <laughs> they have these brutes working for them called Segos, which are part human, part something else. They're they're one of Burroughs' evolutionary left turns where things went another way. Uh, it's not, it doesn't take a big leap to say these could have been humans if they you know, evolved in a surface climate of Earth instead of down at the center of the Earth or something like that. They control the Sagos by uh, hypnotism, and they call it mesmerism, which is what it was called back in the 1800s, and uh, telepathy. And uh, mm-hmm. Perry even says that's not a bad combination for a giant bird. Another one of the blind. I don't know Shit. if that was written or if that was an ad by Cushing or not, but I love that line. Well, we got a version cool. of something he says in, a couple of times. Yeah, one of my favorite lines of his in any film is in Horror yeah. Express. Monsters? No, we're British. You know, we can't be monsters. And but he has a couple line of lines very similar to that in this. That's where I mean, I'm British. <laughs> that was... 
Yeah. And then he immediately crosses but his eyes the, as they start messing with his head anyway. His heart was still, in the right place. You know? It's a wild movie. I, it, I thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, David is a hero. He sees what the Mayhars are doing to the humans, and it just checks the box. He can't stand for it anymore. And he, he vows to destroy them all. You know, he's been there a couple days, and he's made enemies yeah. of the most feared creatures in the center of the earth. And a typical Burroughs hero, these are wrong, decides that it has to be righted, and he makes friends along the way. And David is no different. He falls in love with the most beautiful girl in the world, and then he gets another friend. He finds another friend out in the middle of nowhere. He finds a friend, and the friend's name is Ra. They get into a fist fight. I loved that. Fall into a, a common trap that's got to kill them both, so they team up to defeat the common enemy, and then they're laughing with each other. Yeah. I loved that. I loved that sequence so much so, where... David, I mean, Raw was food. not in the wrong. David crashed his camp and took his food. Raw was not in the wrong oh. to try to, you know, attack him and defend his, his himself and his food and his, his fire. But that that yeah. whole fist fight, there's the you were talking about the rubber tentacles. There's the rubber tentacles moving around with these. I don't know if they were animal. I think they were plants, right? Okay, and we can say that. I think you think you'll agree that that plant inspired the look of Audrey too. Musical Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, for sure. The black and white movie preceded sure. this one. But that plan was more Not... static. In the gold version, that plan was very animated. And yeah. it looked a heck of a lot like that one. And Ugh. David, proving to us that he is the hero, right. could have gotten away no problem. The 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 plan ended up latching onto Raw and was pulling him in. And without hesitation, despite the fact that David was Long. basically fighting for his life against this Light. guy less than 10 seconds ago. Correct. Without and hesitation. They, they, they fall him. away from the plant and they're laughing. Yeah. And David points to himself and says, David. Yeah. And Ra points to himself and says, Ra. And here, this has got to be another ad lib line. David says, Hoorah. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. He's such a <laughs> likable guy. I mean, he's the kind of guy that you want to hang around with. That's got that's got to be Doug McClure because sure. Doug McClure in sure. all of his movies and shows always has a smile on his face, always enjoying what he's doing, laughs, jokes. He's he, he seemed like a great the actor seemed like a great guy. I I never heard a bad thing about him. I, I do like that moment, that bonding moment, the developing friendship and. I mean, he's just able to surround himself with people that, you know, they're, they're friends. They're going to fight together. They're going to save the the civilization or the slaves together. It's, there's a lot in this. We talk about Indiana Jones. I feel like Temple of Doom is very underrated. I think Temple of Doom has a lot of great stuff to offer. And there's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. underground with the slaves and the tunnels and the fire and everything that I'm looking at. And I'm thinking this feels very Temple of Doom. No, there weren't children slaves running around doing stuff, but just the aesthetic, the lighting, some of the construction of the of the set pieces felt very Temple of Doom to me, which would make sense if that was intentional or maybe it was a happy accident. I don't know, but I liked it. The entire movie was shot indoors. Yep. Uh, 
not even on a sound studio. It was shot in a warehouse because they needed a lot of space. They, they actually create a whole world down there with your rubber animals and your plastic plants and all that. But it looked good. I mean, they sold it. They sure. sold it as other world. And once again, I was talking to Caroline Monroe and I asked her about it. And she says, the thing I remember about that shoot is how hot it was. Here she is. She's wearing next to nothing. She said it was hot. <laughs> it had fire going all the time. And that place was hot to work. I would in. imagine so. You also told a, a story where uh, the stunt woman was late one day and they asked her if she could perform the stunt. And she said she did, and she would never do it ever again. She says, if the stunt woman's late, we'll wait for the stunt woman. She was very appreciative of the women that helped make her look so good on the movie. <laughs> it looked hot, and I was wondering how much of that, I mean, obviously, was, so much of it was real. If, if Monroe was uh, commenting on it so many years later, it felt hot. It, Watching it, I felt, I, I felt uncomfortable I, for everybody. Well, and of course, Perry being the proper English gentleman, you know, retained his suit. He, he takes his jacket off, but he, he does have the long sleeves of the best. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I don't even think it's Perry's, him. Isn't it David that like peels the jacket off of him as they're going off course in the Iron Mole? Yeah. yeah so yeah, he doesn't even it, take his own jacket off. Somebody else takes off for him. Well, He's a piece of dominant. You don't take your no, jacket off. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, he never loses that. I mean, just kind of randomly, too, there's the one moment. David, thought about going to the moon. I'm like, dude, <laughs> oh, I love that line. The, the, whole, the whole mountain's coming down around him. You think about going to the moon. Let's finish this adventure like first, okay, Professor? All right, in order to solve our, 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 our love conundrum by not... Uh, by not accepting Dia as his bride, he has to fight Jubal the Ugly One, who is a mountain of a man, yeah. bigger than bigger than Doug McClure, who's no small human being. And uh, in the middle of the fight, Perry calls out, uh, "Forget about the Queensberry rule." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you can go to George of the Jungle, the live action George of the Jungle movie, when George of the Jungle's fighting. Abe calls out to him, you can forget about the Queensberry rules that I told you. Yeah. So, I think a lot of this stuff can be, you know, go back to Burroughs' original work. Uh, the arena scene, we've seen the arena scene in dozens oh, of movies. Yeah. Burroughs wrote arena scenes 110 years ago. I mean, he had, he had it in that Durf's core, he had it in Princess of Mars. You know, so, it, it we have the man a lot. He, he really, he really did the world a favor. There's a great uh, letter. Uh, some young boy wrote him a letter saying that his teacher uh, scolded him for reading uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' book for a book report. So the the boy wrote Edgar Rice Burroughs and told him of his misadventure. And Burroughs wrote back. He says, "I'm sorry to hear that your teacher said that. You and 40 million other people disagree with her." Bye. Yeah. Oh, I love that. The Burroughs are quite an acid sense of humor sometimes. Sure. 
Another fun fact about Edgar Rice yeah. Burroughs, he just by sheer accident, he happened to be in Hawaii, now Honolulu, when uh, Pearl Harbor happened. Oh. And he was a witness to Pearl Harbor. And he was in his 60s at the time. And he volunteered to become a war correspondent. And he stayed in the Pacific Theater through a good bit of the war reporting on the war. Wow. The man, the man was amazing. He never stopped. He just kept going. Wow. Okay. So I did read something on, and I'm not just trying to regurgitate IMDb stuff, but I did read something on the Internet Movie Database. Did some person really lose a finger working on this movie? That's what I yeah. heard. I, I heard the same thing that you did. I, I haven't seen it anywhere else, but it's very possible. And the, the history of stuntmen is incredible. Those guys and gals really give it their yeah. all. And they're very underappreciated for what they do. They deserve do. their own Oscar category, darn it. I got issues with the Oscars. Yeah, <laughs> well. Add a category. I would add one for that because they really do a great job. Yeah. I'm I'm much more happy with the Rondo Award. I can I can personally say I know four Rondo winners that if I send them a message on Facebook, they'll actually answer and talk to me about it. <laughs> I don't know. Jamie Lee Curtis thanked <laughs> us for helping her with her Oscars, so I don't know, you know. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. She she uh in her speech, she's like, Thank you to you know everybody who watched all of my genre films, this is your Oscar too. So I'm like, I, yeah. And we were I did read where she said yep. that. She might be the first woman ever to admit, I'm a John. Right. That's what I am. I need to send her a your welcome card, you know, just kind of. <laughs> yep. That's yeah. crazy. But uh, I, I, I don't, I know when people look at me or listen to me talk about movies, I'm, I'm associated with like classic monster stuff. And that's great. I love that stuff. But I also love classic cinema. I also love just film in general, modern film, classic film, silent mm. film, foreign film. I love it all, really. And there are blank spots for me, places that I don't know a lot about, the particular types of film or, or, or schools of filmmaking or whatever. Stunt work is something that I'm learning more about lately. You know, I've been following a handful of stunt performers on online and, you know, learning more about what it is they do and all that. And it just blows my mind when you look at the history of cinema and the kind of things that they were being asked to do, the things that they did do before we realized, hey, we can do this safely. Right. <laughs> wow. The, the story that I, I saw a documentary about... Uh, the, the movie business in the Philippines in the 1970s. The genre producers found out you could make a cheap movie in the Philippines. And the government was very helpful if you brought money into the Philippines. Sure. So they would hire the local for background care and whatever, you know, whatever they needed, they would hire local, which the locals love that. Except that the safety regulations of making a movie in the Philippines was nowhere near a Hollywood production. So the director would tell the a Filipino stuntman who might have been a farmer the day before, you know, I want you to jump through that window. <laughs> and the guy would say, no. 
all they had to say was an American would do it. Why won't you do it? As soon as they challenged them by saying an American would do it, the guy would jump through the window, not knowing that the American stuntman was jumping through candy glass, which was designed to shatter, as opposed to glass glass, which is designed to cut you to ribbons when you go jump it through. Right. Yeah. So they got away with a lot of stuff by just challenging their manhood. So I, I really appreciate stunt men and women. I think they I think movies are better because of oh, them sure. as opposed to Yeah, for sure. Just and the the drive to tell these stories and do these things, whether and I know we're way off track here. Well, we're I'm gonna bring it back. Okay, Go just ahead. It, it it really kind of scratches that DIY itch that I enjoy so much about these low budget movies anyway. Even if it's something nope. as are you familiar with uh, with Hollywood, the the low budget stuff that was being produced, um, you know, the late twenty tens or whatever in Uganda? No, not so at all. No. They're, they're not the greatest movies. You know, the guys they don't have the money, they don't have the resources, but they have a, a, dr- a drive and they want to make these movies, and they have an old Lewis. computer that they can edit on and all that, and they're making action movies. Like they me. want to make action movies with a lot of explosions and bullets and blood, yeah. but they don't know anything about filmmaking. I so mean, they go to the slaughterhouse to get cow blood. A lot. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, when people start catching hepatitis, they're like, oh, wait a minute, there's got to be a better way. But, you know, the, the drive to tell these stories one way or another, safely or not, well, we go, you know, I love that and I respect that. We can go back to Amicus in the 70s yeah. then. Amicus saw the production value that Hammer was doing at the time. And they said, we can't quite do that. We just don't have the money, but we're going to try. And I, I give them, they had a lot of heart. They they said, if it wasn't for Amicus, we would not have these Douglas Poor movies in the 70s. There would be a big hole in my life where those four movies, he made four of them, where those four movies don't exist. And I'm, what would have filmed it? Does you know? A romantic comedy, which I love. I my people uh, ask me what my favorite movie is, and they're always expecting to hear like, you know, Frankenstein or a western or something. My favorite movie is The Quiet Man with John Wayne, and that's really? a love story. Wow! Yeah. You know, uh, Beth and I just saw a lady of Lady on a Train last night uh, at the Kiggins Theater. It's our film noir night, and uh, I loved it. Nineteen forty-five mystery wacky whodunit I absolutely oh, loved it I think it's probably one of my favorite movies I've seen this year so far yeah, you know there's it, it, a world of movies out there yeah seen and they yet. did show a trailer for The Quiet Man right before which is what made me think of it so oh yeah that's <laughs> great I, I was watch, I watched John Wayne movies uh, his war movies and his westerns and I was watching a documentary about John Wayne on PBS and then they showed a clip from The Quiet Man and I said, I have got to see this movie. And when I did get a chance to see it, I was stunned at how beautiful it was. And it's just a, it's a romantic comedy. There, there's no huge stakes, except are these two, is this couple going to make it to the end of the movie? You know, that, that's the stakes of the entire movie. You know, are they going to fall in love and get married or not? Yeah. yeah. It pretty much is. And, and, and I said, that is a, it was a fantastic movie. And I loved it. And it's my favorite movie to this day. I loved it. I know we're again we're way off track, but 
and always get the plane on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. So it'll, it'll be- I wonder if that's why they were showing a trailer for it. Cause I, I, I know it's not part of their film noir offering. It's just not film noir at all. So I'm curious. But uh, I, I did love the trailer where it's, you know, it's good because the director has three Oscars. So I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Amicus says, we're going to do our best to make a good yeah. movie. And they, they found some source material, which was good. And they adapted it by not straying from the source material. They did that with uh, At the Earth's Core and The Land of Time Forgot. Well, I'll hold both those movies up as you want a book made into a movie without straining these two movies with how it's done. You know, and they didn't have budgets for either of them. They had a little better budget on At the Earth's Core than they did with uh, Land of Time Forgot. But, uh, they, they they made it with heart. They made it with love. Yep. You know, everybody showed up and they went to work. You know, nobody nobody's phoning it in. Everybody's taking it seriously. Right. Is it kind of ridiculous? I suppose on the surface, you've got guys running around in rubber suits and pretending to telepathically control these guys with I'm, whatever. Sure, okay, but everybody's yeah. taking it so seriously anyway. Even Cushing, with that kind of bumbling act that he does halfway through the film, you know, through half of the film. He's still taking it mm-hmm. seriously, which lends to the, it just makes it fun. Everybody's just having a good time. Nobody's Absolutely. just winking at the camera and winking, you know, and nobody's chuckling and no tongues are in anybody's cheeks. And, you know, it's, it's, everybody's taking right. it seriously, but they're having fun doing it. And that translates, I think, to the film. I love Hammer film. I love Hammer film. I don't think they could have done really? something like this. I don't think they would have done something like this. I know they tried with a couple of things. Lost God, it's They're great, built. but. There was there was a script on somebody's desk at the very end of Hammer, uh, roughly Zeppelin versus Pterodactyl. Yeah. And I would I would kill to see that movie made in the oh, 70s. Oh, that'd be amazing. In the 70s. That movie made in 2023 20, would not be the same as a, that one made in the 70s. It would 70s. be a CGI fest. And there, no. there, I know there's an art there too, and I know it's got its place, but it would be a CGI fest and it would not have the soul, the texture that something from the 70s would have. Yeah. I don't want to put down CGI. No, not at all. A lot of of them put their heart and soul in their work. Well, some of them don't. Yeah. So so it's like, it's like in everything. It's like in, right? And uh, I was on the edge of my seat at the end of, Avengers engine. Sure. Along with everybody else. And when and when Cap picked up that hammer and swung it and threw it at thing, I was right there with everybody else, loving every second you, of it. You so know? It can be done. It can be done extremely well. You can completely lose yourself in that movie. The uh you know, so. the first legendary Godzilla film. The yeah. first time Godzilla uses the atomic breath, you know, when he's fighting the Muto and he, he pulls open the Muto's mouth and fires the atomic exactly. breath into I swore out loud. I was like, holy, yeah, I, I was there, man. Yeah. But, and that, you know. That's that's what a movie yep. can do for an hour and a half, two hours. It can transport you from a, your seat to another yep. world. And that's what they did with uh, At the Earth's Core. Look, look at us I trying to bring a, it back on oh, track. But you're absolutely right. I, w- I was in another world for an hour and a yeah, half. Yeah, another world that I, I wish there were more. And apparently there are more books, so maybe I'll just have to get my fix that way. But I wish there would have been more movies with that cast, with that crew, 
Uh, I belong to a uh, Edgar Rice, a couple of Edgar Rice Burroughs groups on Facebook. Yeah. And the general consensus is everybody wanted to see a uh, John Carter movie with Caroline Monroe playing Deja Thoris on Mars. That's like a given. They said they want Ray Harryhausen to animate the creatures and Caroline Monroe to play Deja Thoris. And I said, wow. <laughs> if I had a time machine, would I go back and do that or would I go back and do something else? Make that up, you know. And we, I don't even want to talk about John Carter too much because how Disney handled that or mishandled that. Uh, um, but yeah, I have an anniversary on March 9th of the John Carter movie 11 years. Has it been that long already? Yeah, man, it still, still is the biggest flop in history, which is something I enjoyed it, you know, it wasn't. It was not the movie I wanted to see, but as a standalone movie, I enjoyed it. And that, and here we go back to how far do you want to deviate from the source material to make a movie? That's true, right? That's true. They did, they did deviate quite a bit from that from the book to the make that. Well, movie. I would almost imagine, and and I don't know, not having read it, I would imagine that if you mm-hmm. were making an Edgar Rice Burroughs film or TV mm-hmm. show, you would right. have to deviate because. Just because you have the rights or or are trying to make a John Carter movie doesn't mean you have the rights or are going to be able to bring Tarzan in for whatever crossover Burroughs wrote, you know. So, well, I would not I would not worry about that with the first okay. movie. I would the first movie. Okay, okay. As like like comic books, they didn't cross over right in the beginning. They crossed over later. That's true. When, when every character was established, that's when they started to cross over. That's true. And then and you would know having or babe. I'm not I'm not putting anybody down because I love the MCU movies. But uh now they make a movie with the intent to introduce new character. Instead of giving those characters their own movie to introduce themselves, they shoehorn them into a existing character movie and takes away from the no, 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 no. We're going down a route I don't want to talk about right now. <laughs> well, and Mark, you've written, I mean, you've worked in the industry. You're a comic book writer, yep. so, I mean. Yep. I totally understand where you're coming from. Uh, you know, as somebody who just finished writing a superhero novel, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, totally get it. Totally get it. Char- characters first. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Think of convincing character first. Build your world second, and then do the stuff that the big budget movies do. Do that third. You know, only if if oh. only we could have gotten more of these movies. You know, uh, whether it's Amicus doing anything. I mean, I I think Amicus. I'd love to see Amicus come back. I don't know if it can. I I don't see. It I coming. know. I, you, me, and all the other monster kids would say yes, but all the normies out there, they, they wouldn't. Amicus doesn't mean anything to yeah, them. Yeah, Hammer barely has any pop culture, you know, mainstream cachet. So, Hammer tried a couple of years ago to come back, and it just didn't. Quite I feel like make... they try to bring Hammer back. Like it's a cycle, you know. We're about due for another Hammer film and another push, right? There was a um, a movie a couple of years back. There was a popular series of novels where they stuck zombies into classic novels. And they did uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I yeah, think was yeah, the name Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Mm-hmm. And I had a boy if the, if the Hammer guys and gals had that movie 
in the early 70s, that would have been a very good oh, movie. Oh, wow, yes. Very different movie. And it would I think it would have succeeded. Well, the movie that came out of that book, because it was a book first, the, very different than the book. But, yeah, wow. I'm still convinced that Hammer could have made more zombie movies than they did. And the only reason they didn't is because Night of the Living Dead came along and kind of changed the zombie game on them. But, well, I'm going to point my finger at the Exorcist. Uh, well, that changed everything, right? That, that killed gothic horror, right? That movie killed gothic yeah. horror. So. That changed everything. The Plague of the Zombies is one of my absolute favorite Hammer films. I love it. Who was the leading actress in that one again? In Plague of the Zombies? Jacqueline. Oh, uh, was it Jacqueline Pierce? Is that, am I right? I believe so. I'm going to double check the name. Yeah, Jacqueline Pierce. That's correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I... I I I vividly remember that one yep. now. And John Carson is just fantastic in it. That is probably one of my favorite mm-hmm. Andre Morel roles as well. Right. right. Well, we had uh, Doug McClure, American action TV star in At the Earth's yep. War. We had Peter Cushing, British actor, superstar, mm-hmm. who elevates everything. everything. I, don't think I've, I don't think I've ever seen I'm saying this with a straight face. I don't think I've ever seen a bad Peter Cushing performance. Even at the very end of his career, he brought it. He, he did bring All the it. time, 110%. The man was a master. And we had the very underused Caroline Monroe. She should have had a much bigger career in movies and television back then. They always brought her in to be the beautiful woman. And she's got such a sense of humor and such a wonderful voice. They would dub her voice in some. They didn't dub her voice in this movie. In some movies, they dubbed her voice. And I said, "Are you insane? Yeah, why would you do that?" Well, in in Star Crash, they ran out of money. And uh, when they were doing that, the Italians always used to shoot without sound. Right? Yeah, it was all wild like sound. The, yeah, it was all whatever. Yeah. And they would dub the voices in later. And at the very end of the of the line, they just flat ran out of money. So they got the male star, Marjo Gortner's wife, Candy Clark, to do Carolyn Monroe's voice because they just couldn't afford to do it, to have her do it. But in other movies, they dubbed their voice too. Yeah. When they did. And Hammer was guilty in that too. Hammer dubbed in all their women at one point or another. I, and I, I couldn't. They dubbed Valerie Leone in Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. And I've spoken to Valerie Leone. She has a wonderful voice. For Americans, it just melts your they melt your blood. It's it's so beautiful. And I said, why would you why would you dub why would you dub that? Right. Yeah. So I don't get it. I don't get it. Some you know somebody follows a good idea. Yeah. But it is her voice in this, and uh, she does a great job along with everybody else. And she's not just a damsel. No, in she's not. She's not. Yeah. Let, let's get, let's make it clear. She is a damsel in distress. She's not just a damsel in distress in Correct. this movie. Correct. So, uh, I'm glad I'm glad you uh, recommended this one though, and you wanted to talk about this because, like I said, it was a first time view for me. I'd never seen it before, so if you want to go down the road a little bit, you know, if we want to do this again, uh, Land Before Time, highly recommend that one, and its sequel, which picks up right where the first one leaves off. Okay, is called The People That Time for Earth. The land of time for not the land before time. That's a dinosaur. I, you know, I you said it. It's like 
Should I say? No, that's right. Wait, no, it's not. Yeah. The one that Ty forgot is another Burroughs story, very well adapted. And the people that Ty forgot is uh, they took a lot of liberties with that one. They went in a completely different direction with that one, which is for the movie, it's okay. Because the book kind of re retrans a lot of the old stuff. Okay. So. So uh, that if we if we want to do this again, I would do those two movies as one. I would count those two movies as one movie. If you ever want to do this in the future, of course. No, let's plan for it. Let's let's commit to it now. It will happen. The fourth of the Amicus movies was made completely out of whole cloth, called Warlords of Atlantis, and that's a that's a fun movie. That's that's the fourth of the horology that they did with Doug McClure. Okay. Yeah, let's plan for That's it. That's a fun one. That one has its own great story. It's hardly ever been shown on TV. Had a very limited release as a DVD. So that one's got a weird backstory, which I can't quite wrap my head around. Okay. Yeah, let's plan for it. Let's plan for it for later this yeah. year. We'll we'll get back to uh, Burroughs and Hollow Earth. Hollow Holler. <laughs> Hollow Earth. Hollow Earth. <laughs> All are down, girl. There we go. There we go. In the meantime, though, if people want to keep up with anything you've got going on, any any comic projects you want to talk about, anything coming up? I am working on a screenplay for a, speaking of CGI, a completely computer animated movie. And I have a couple of uh, comic stories in the works, too. Nothing I can really talk about right now. Right on. Well. And I hope to get back, I, I mentioned earlier, I hope to get back into short filmmaking with uh, completely, and not animated, uh, stop motion work. I want to try my hand at that. It's tempting. I'd, I'd like to do it myself. Mm. I would love to do that. And Derek, I'm going to give you your admonition one more time. I want you to pick up a camera and make something. Make a movie somewhere. If It can, it can be two people talking in a room if you want. You've got your lead actress. <laughs> you I do. I do. A month or so, you'll have your lead actress if you get run away. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, she hasn't figured out that she can say no at this point. And so, yeah. Come on, we will have a set or leftover props or something you could use. It's, did. it's definitely something we've talked about. It's definitely something we've yep. talked about. So, There are movies set in... Fun houses. Yeah, I know. I know. No, there's there there are things potentially in the works, but right now I'm focusing most of my free brain activity <laughs> uh to the wedding. So Yep, I more power to well, you, boss. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> That'll win. All right. Well, Mark, thanks again for doing this. I appreciate you coming on and uh yeah, we'll definitely have you back on to do some more Burroughs fun. Thanks for having me. Proud to be a moth kid. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. First, I want to say that Beth was in the room when I was putting the finishing touches on the edit of the conversation that I had with Mark. And uh, first of all, she has shown me Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And she actually said she couldn't believe that we ended up talking about it without talking to her about it. Because she actually was the one that showed it to me. It's one that she really liked and she wanted to share that with me. So uh, I thought that was funny uh timing that she happened to be in the room when that came up but the other thing is uh, beth just started laughing out loud as soon as she heard mark say that you know now that i'm married i i kind of have an actress 
and my Becca call who can't run away. Um, <laughs> uh, she, she can run away. I've got bad legs, bad knees on a bad back, but, uh, you know, here's the thing talking about movie stuff. I feel comfortable saying this now. We shot a movie. Now I didn't direct it. In fact, my role was strictly as a producer and sound designer, but we shot a movie, a short film. We participated in the Movie Madness Direct-to-Video Film Festival. It was a 48-hour film race or film contest. We were given a prop and a prompt and told to go and make a movie. And that's what we did with uh, one of my oldest friends, somebody that I met in film school, one of my best friends now. He's my brother. He was one of my groomsmen in the wedding. Matt Rashley wrote, directed, and did most of the editing of a short film called Latchkeys. And it was an exhilarating experience. Beth was one of the actresses in it. She played if there could be an antagonist or the antagonist in this piece. It was fun. It was a learning experience. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more. Latchkeys will be shown online in the future. We are waiting for it to have its DVD release. The way this film festival was set up with Movie Madness, which is a video rental store in Portland. It's like the video rental store in Portland. They are taking all of the entries and they're going to put them all on a DVD and make it available for rent on the shelves. And they're giving copies of the DVDs to the various teams. Once it is released on DVD, Matt and I have talked about doing an online screening, probably through the Twitch channel over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio and show it there. And, you know... I, is it fair to say that we're back? Maybe. I, I don't know. But I had a really good time doing it, and I want to do more. I definitely want to do more. I want to direct. I know Beth wants to direct some stuff. I want to do more. So it, it has happened. For those of you keeping track of how many times I say I thought I'd be a filmmaker when I grew up. All right, let's talk about what's coming up next week on the show. So uh, we're going to play some voicemails that have come in. You know, we're going to do a feedback special. But also, we are going to probably have some content from Monster Bash. I know that I've got an interview that Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland produced. You know, he, he did with Audrey Dalton. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I've seen the picture that he took with Audrey, and he looked like he had a grand time. I'm so jealous of everybody who went to Monster Bash. I was definitely experiencing some, if I could use a term those kids use these days, FOMO some fear of missing out, man, the monster bash looked like a grand time. And, you know, Beth and I are looking at summer of next year. If I speak it aloud, it gives it power and maybe it'll manifest itself or help manifest itself. We'd really like to go to next year's summer bash. I miss the bash. I miss seeing my friends and hanging out with people and meeting new people and that sort of thing. And I am so excited about sharing this amazing experience with my amazing wife. I think Beth would have a really grand time as well. And, and honestly, I just want to kind of show off my awesome wife, but it's not just that. I just, I really miss the bash. So, you know, next year, maybe fingers and tentacles crossed. But in the meantime, I've got all the monster bash memories that everybody else has shared with me. If anybody wants to call anything in or send something in, I'd love to include that in next week's episode as well. There will be links in the show notes to everything we've talked about here on the show over at monsterkidradio.net, so go check all of that out. 
We've got links to our Twitter, our Facebook, our Twitch, our Patreon, our Discord, our YouTube channel, the Team Death YouTube channel in particular, which is the channel that Beth and I do together now. And there's Amazon affiliate links as well. If you do any shopping on Amazon, please consider using the Amazon affiliate links because it helps us out in the long run. However it is you interact with or support the show, just know that I appreciate it. I also appreciate the band that gave us permission to play their music here on the show, which I'll mention here in a minute, right after I tell you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to that song. I was just mentioning Serpentarium. It is by Scotinas. It's copyright 2023. Them. It's Scotinas. And it's from their album, Tunes for Twanguiloids. Check them out at scotinas.bandcamp.com. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Also, super cool information about Scotinas. I didn't mention this at the top of the show. You can actually hear their music in a movie called Blood and Gold that's available on Netflix right now. They did a surf version of the main title theme that appears in the end titles of the movie. It's also on the original soundtrack. Blood and Gold, I'm told, is a nice, trashy Nazi western by Peter Thorwath. I haven't seen the movie yet, but nice, trashy Nazi western. Yeah, you got my interest. I'll go check that out at some point. Until next week, my name is Sarah Kim Cook. Talk to everybody in seven-ish days. Ciao.